Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We begin this morning a, a new series, one that I have titled uh, Gospel BC, and our hope is that through this series you will realize and we will be reminded uh, that God's grace and His promise, His, His goodness have been evident from the very beginning. My hope is that it will be uh, both uh, challenging and encouraging to all of us as we see uh, God unfolded uh, before us and at the same time have practical challenges seeing ourselves in the people who he has interacted with throughout, uh, throughout the Old Testament. We'll be hitting, uh, obviously, uh, high points only. And when I say high points, it doesn't mean that these are more important than the passages that we will not be looking at but we'll be looking at different subjects uh, of redemption as it's unfolding uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the Old Testament. So we will, we will get a taste and at the same time a, a pretty comprehensive view as Camper and I uh, work through this uh, series together. Before we come to the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, you are our hope and our salvation and your Word has been given to us so that we are not left to wonder about you or even about ourselves. Jesus, who is the Word incarnated, uh, every word, uh, His body, His life, is the, uh, is the expression of everything there is to say about you and about our hope. And he has told us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Father, may we feed on Your Word and may our souls be nourished and strengthened and renewed through this time of study. May your Spirit speak to us and renew our minds and our hearts, convicting us, restoring us, and strengthening us. I pray all of this in the name of Christ, our, Word, our Redeemer and our King. Amen. Genesis 3, we'll begin our reading in verse 1 and read through verse 9. Hear the word of the living God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, 
where are you? May the Lord bless us through his holy word. Now this passage is significant in that it addresses several universal questions. Questions that at one time or another we have all probably asked. Perhaps while watching the news or reading the newspaper we have asked, why is the world the way that it is? What's, what's wrong with the world? Why does our society seem to be so broken? Why can't people just get along? Or questions that we may ask that are are more personal. What's wrong with me? Why Why don't I seem to be able to be better than I am? Why can't I seem to do better? There's no lack of opinion about these questions. Social scientists and particularly behaviorists will tell us it's just a product of our environment. It's part of our society. We live around one another. We learn bad behaviors, see different responses, and we adopt certain behaviors, and then we, we just live those things out, and it, it causes problems. There are some people who are oppressed that through our bad behavior. Some are oppressed, and they respond to oppression with evil in order to set themselves free or to make themselves equal or maybe even to make themselves above those who are their oppressors. And then those who are the original oppressors, having then received evil or now being under the dominion of somebody else, they respond to the evil with evil. And then the cycle just continues and continues to spiral and spread in any number of different directions. So social scientists tell us that it's just a product of our environment, and so we need to just learn and cut it out. There's another strain of social science that I don't know how new it is. I I learned of it only a couple of years ago. It's known as evolutionary psychology. Now, the evolutionary psychologist shares some characteristics with their their biological evolutionist cousins, whereas biological evolutionists talk about man for the survival of the species has certain characteristics that are strong, and so they tend to predominate, and then they multiply, and then the strongest survive, and the weak falls away, and then the strong will always over, over be strong, uh, uh, superior to the weak. The evolutionary psychologist says the same thing happens in terms of our behavior, or at least in our mindset. They say that the, the problem is not so much our environment. The problem is inherent in us. There's just something about us that acts out in certain behaviors, including uh, oppression, that the, that the strong will always oppress the weak, and then the strong survive, and only the strongest will continue to survive. And so behaviors become hardwired into our makeup and passed on. One thing that I found interesting as I was reading about the evolutionary psychology is that it seems that the evolutionary psychologists get flack from both flanks. The people that are their colleagues in the ivory towers that are on the left, more of the humanists say, The problem can't be in us. The problem is not us. It's the culture. It's the world. It's what we've experienced. The problem cannot be man. And then those on the right, particularly those who are religious and religious conservatives, they say, well, we might be able to accept the fact that there's something wrong with man. I mean, that we, we are flawed and realize that. But what you're saying is that there's no hope. In fact, what you're saying is that Oppression is almost inevitable. It's almost necessary because that's the only way that we're going to survive. And so there's no hope to ever get past it. It's just part of who we are. 
and you say just deal with it. And so whether people are on the left or whether on the right, they are not embracing the evolutionary psychologist. The problem with both the behaviorists and the evolutionary psychologist is that neither of them factors God into the equation. Neither considers what faith in the one true God would do. Neither considers how things were as they were originally designed as God created them, nor do they consider the character of God and God's intent and what God may be doing and, so, and what God has prescribed as the solution to the dilemma that we have. Neither take those things into consideration. What we have here in Genesis 3 is what every scientist and every social scientist would love to have. What we have is a perfectly controlled environment. God had just created everything. I don't know how long. We won't get into the discussion as to how long a time there was between Genesis 1-1 and where we are right now. But save it to say is everything had just been created. Everything was created by God. Span of six days, all very good. Everything was perfect. Man and woman were in perfect harmony with one another and in perfect harmony with God and in perfect harmony with all of the creation that was around them. Every need that man and woman had was provided for them by God and through this creation. Everything was exactly perfect. And all the needs, everything that they could possibly want were met. And so it's a perfect backdrop for us to say, okay, now that we have the perfect environment, we can ask, how did we get the way we are? Where did the problems begin? How did they get started? I mean, it's not like the subjects that we're looking at can say, well, I am the way I am. It's my mom's fault. I mean, it's Adam and Eve. The neighbor didn't scar you, beating you up when you were a kid. I mean, that just wasn't the... There's, there is no thing. Every possible negative has been stripped away from this scenario. And so as we look at this, we realize that we have a, a perfect environment. As we dig into this text, we're going to do so in a couple of different ways. One is there are two questions that we, will have, that we find in this text that provide a framework for us. The first is the serpent's question in, in verse 1 when he comes to Eve and says, did God really say? And then the second question is found in verse 9, and it's God coming to Adam, and he says, where are you? These are important questions, and I say they create the framework for us, or they provide a framework for us, because these questions provide the foundation as to why we have the problem that we have. And they also point us to the solution, the hope that we all desire. So as we dig into the substance of this text and, and, and try to pull out from it what uh, the story and, and a number of practical applications. Those are the questions that create the framework. But we're also going to look at this in, from three different perspectives or in, in, with three different themes. The first we're going to consider is the roots of our brokenness. And second, we will consider the fruits of our brokenness. And then third, we will consider the solution for our condition. Now, as far as the roots of our brokenness, we begin seeing that in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The first thing that we need to note is that there is a living being who is anti-God. He is smart, he is smooth, he is slick, but he hates God and he hates anything that is for God and loves God. 
whatever you want to call him. Here we see him as a serpent. Elsewhere in Scripture, he's called Satan. He's called the devil. He's called the enemy. There are any number of names that are found in Scripture. Whatever you want to call him, we need to realize that this, according to God, this entity, this being, does exist, is at work, does live, active and opposing God in this world. Now, some might question as to whether or not he should be there. If we're looking at a perfect environment and we want to see what happened and why things are the way they are and whether we are at fault or where the fault rests, saying to put something in there, somebody in there that is just evil, that kind of messes up the whole thing and, and wonder whether he should be there. And I would suggest to you it's really not that much of a problem as we, as we look at this. The fact is that he does exist. He is real and he is evil. And so the fact that he is there, that's reality. And so the question is, how do we deal with reality? How, does, how do our first parents deal with reality? And the reality is that just because evil exists, our first parents having everything provided for and perfect fellowship with God, they did not have to respond to evil. Or they certainly didn't have to respond to evil with evil. And the same is true in one sense for us as we have been redeemed and have been set free from his power. We may receive certain, uh, he may try certain influences, but we don't have to respond to him. So the fact that he's there does not create a problem for us. In fact, he actually creates an interesting stimulus to be added into the, into the mix. We had the perfect scenario. Now, what happens when evil is thrown into the mix? How will people respond? And so it's a, it's a perfectly appropriate stimulus for us to have and to consider as we ask our questions this morning. Now, what the serpent did was he went to Eve and he asks his question. He says, did God really say that you can't eat from any, any tree from, from the garden? And what he does when he is asking that question is he, he, he starts, uh, we see in Eve, one of the roots of our brokenness, one of the roots beginning to develop the, of her brokenness, our brokenness. And that root is a root of doubt. Now, I need to be clear that not all doubt is evil. Not all doubt is wrong. Doubts, in one sense, lead us to question. Questions, if we ask honest questions, uh, lead us to answers. Answers lead us to truth, and God is all truth, and so therefore, questions, doubts can lead us down the path to actually having a closer and better intimacy, greater intimacy with God as we are greater, more aware of who God is and what God has done. So not all doubts are necessarily bad if the questions that are being asked are, are honest questions. But sometimes doubt comes because the questions that causes us to ask questions that do not lead us toward God, but they lead us away from God, and they create not so much questions that give us answers, but they create unbelief. It's not so much doubt. Doubt is not a problem. Unbelief is the sin that we are told that we need to be aware of within ourselves. In other words, God has said something. We're aware of it. It's not that we don't understand and we have doubts. How does that work? It's that we just, God has said it and we say, I don't think so. We set ourselves over and above God. And so we see the roots of doubt beginning to, uh, to emerge in Eve when the question is asked to her. The key in determining whether doubts are right or are evil or not is the type of questions that's being asked. If it's a question that is seeking truth and, and honest, uh, honest answers, something Francis Schaeffer, I think, wonderfully tells us is greatly needed in the church today, is that we need to be willing to give honest answers to honest questions. And he says that part of the problem is in our conservative churches, we don't like questions. We don't like honest questions. We just want to tell people what we're supposed to believe. They're supposed to buy it, run with it, and never ask us anything and never admit that they don't understand. The fact is we all have questions at some time or another, and we should be free to ask honest questions. Honest questions get answers, lead us to God. 
The problem here, though, is it's another kind of question. This serpent is not asking a question that's an honest question. The serpent is asking a question that is leading. In one sense, it's condescending. It's snide. The serpent is essentially saying, do you really believe this? And then when you respond in a positive way, they say, that's cute. Essentially what the serpent is saying here, he's begging the answer. He's either begging for Eve to deny what God has said, or when she responds, he, by attitude or by words, is saying essentially, you're not as smart as I, I thought you were. It's a type of question that automatically puts the hearer on the defensive. And so Eve being on the defensive hearing this question, the serpent's question is not an honest question. He's not seeking honest answers. He's trying to lead, and in particular, he's trying to leave, lead away from God. And so we see as that has taken root, there is one of the problems that we have is, is doubt, unhealthy doubt as opposed to healthy doubt. The second route that we see in this text is, is from what Eve's response, and, and actually the whole dialogue that Eve and the serpent have together, it's a distortion of God's word. Because a serpent distorts God's word by saying, did God actually tell you that you can't eat from any tree? And Eve responds wisely and correctly, and she said, no, God didn't say that we can't eat from any tree. God said that we could eat from all of the trees except for the one in the midst of the garden. And he said, don't even touch that one or you'll die. When we look at this dialogue, we need to realize that there is a, a very real problem here of the distortion of God's word by both the serpent and by Eve. Regardless of the motives on either part, it has damaging effects and effects that are not just limited to the original fall, but are really common in our day as well. See, what the serpent is doing in one sense is he's taking away from God's word. Even though he's adding a word, he's taking away from God's word because when he says that God said you shouldn't eat from any tree He's taking away God's word that expresses goodness and provision when he's, he's suggesting that there wasn't anything. And Eve's response, though, wise in the sense of saying, no, God didn't say we couldn't eat of any of the trees. She actually adds to God's word when she says, God said, don't even touch it. Because God never even, never said that. Both of them distort God's word. And when I said that that's a problem that we have today, we need to be very careful about distorting God's word because we see it all around us in the churches and even in our own lives, even in my life. And we do it in both the same ways. We either reduce God's word and we take some of it or we understand or we think that we know all when we only know part. And we reduce God's word and we relate to God on the basis of what we think he said or what we're willing to acknowledge that he said. And we tend to find that on the left or more liberal churches. But on the right and the more fundamentalist churches, we find people who add to God's word. They make laws and rules and instructions that God never got around to making. And they call things evil that God has called good. And they say, you can't do these things. And to be godly is a matter of keeping these standards as opposed to simply living in fellowship with God in accordance with the word that he has actually given us. We see that danger and it affects us and it leads us to the right or to the left, not down the straight path that God wants us to walk. And we see that taking place in this dialogue. And so the second root of our, uh, 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 that we have of our, our, uh, our brokenness is a distortion of God's word. When we don't know God's word, it actually, we don't function very well. Whether we take from it or add to it. But even worse is the distortion of God wor God's word leads to the third root of our brokenness, which is a distortion of God's character. You see, what happened by both Eve and the serpent adding and taking from God's word both of them distorted God's character. Both of them made God out to be more harsh than he really is. 
So the serpent was saying, God is holding back from you. He's stingy. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He doesn't want you to be all that you can be. God's not somebody you can trust. Now, I'm not sure why Eve didn't consider the fact that maybe the serpent didn't have her best interest at heart either, but the serpent was suggesting to her, God's not somebody you can trust. And so he's distorting God's character as if God is holding back. Eve distorts God's character by making God harsher, meaner, sterner, more stern than he really is. God had given clear instructions of all that he had provided and then said, but don't eat of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that does beg the question is, why did God put the tree there in the first place? And I don't really have the time nor the intellectual capacity to answer that sufficiently. But I do think we need to understand certain things with that. One is that God's ways are God's ways. God has proven himself to be gracious just by the creation in the first place and all that he had already provided them. They should have had no doubt whatsoever about God's willingness to give them good. All they could have ever want had been provided for them, and everything they experienced was beautiful and good. He said, don't touch this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Now, one of the questions that we often find ourselves asking, or I've heard a number of times, is, well, why wouldn't he want them to know this? Isn't that, isn't that what they should know? Well, here's another question we need to ask. What did they know prior to knowing good and evil? They knew only good. Why did they need to know the evil? I know for some that still is a difficult question and saying, well, that's besides the point. They still should know. I would suggest to you that most of you don't actually live your lives consistent with your curiosity if, if you believe that we should just have the knowledge of evil. There's a number of us that are in this room that have experienced cancer, gone through the treatments, some very severe, some less or so have gone through it. But for those of you who have not gone through cancer, how many of you want to go through cancer? I you know, want, pray for, that you pray, God, give me cancer so I know, so I understand. I really want to take those poison, uh, poison in, infusions of chemo so that I just really understand. I just want to experience this. I don't know that any of you here have had AIDS. I pray you have not. But I'm pretty sure that if there's anybody, if anybody here who has not had AIDS would be praying to the Lord, Lord, give me AIDS because I want to really just, I want to know what this is. I want to know what it's like. I want to know what it feels like. See, we don't live our lives feeling that we need to experience evil and understand that, especially when the alternative is good. And what they were, had been provided was nothing but good. There's no reason for them to eat from the tree. And God's instruction there was to prevent them. But why did he put it there? Perhaps it's because it was the only way for us to know whether we were actually following God and loving God or whether we were just machines. It's the only way to demonstrate our, our freedom, the fact that we were created after the image of God, that we were able to think and act according to our own, our own decisions, uh, our own mind. Because with that possibility of disobedience, then obedience becomes very real. When there is no possibility of disobeying, then obedience is not really obedience. It's just mechanical. And so one way or another, God provided that for whatever his motives, whatever his reasons, it's not... It's not problematic. It doesn't speak negatively of God. But somehow, through this discussion, 
both Eve and the serpent began to distort the image of God's character. Eve doing so by making God far more stern than he really is. The serpent by declaring that God is not somebody who is able to be trusted. And Eve's response reveals the fourth root of our brokenness, and I would call that independence. See, the way Eve responded is by saying, you know what? I don't really know about this. I know I don't know everything, but I guess I know enough. I'm going to have to make a decision for myself. I can't just, so she doesn't ask God his, his thoughts or, or to accept what God has said. She doesn't ask her husband's opinion, though, frankly, as we see, he wasn't much help, wouldn't have been much help anyway. She just says, you know what? I know enough. I will make the decision for myself. She exercises independence from her husband and from God. And in that sense, breaks the perfect harmony that had existed both between she and her husband, she and God, and she of all of creation at that point in time. One thing we need to understand is that we have stepped into foolishness whenever we say, I don't need anybody else's counsel. I have all the information I need. I will make the decision, and I will determine what is right, what is good, and what is true. And so Eve made herself an independent. Now, we don't always think of independence as a bad thing. Obviously, our, our nation was founded. We, we desired independence. Our culture is founded on a principle that we believe in individual liberties, and those things are very good. The problem here is that they, Eve made herself independent from what? She made herself independent from God, which breaks the fellowship. Eve made herself independent from God's provision and God's promises, which had all been fulfilled and were providing for her and what brought joy and happiness and pleasure in all ways. And she declared herself as an agent, not just independent, but by declaring that she would determine what is right and what is wrong, she became a judge over God. She became God, like God in her own mind because she became the judge of God. That kind of independence streak lives within many of us, lives within all of us. We all have that capacity. But as we look at what Eve has done, we see four roots of our, of our brokenness. Not because of the serpent. The serpent was a stimulus that didn't necessarily need to be responded to in the way that he was. But one, it, it began by simply doubting, doubting God. It, begun, it hap- occurs when we distort God's word and what God said, which inevitably leads to the distortion or the misunderstanding of God's character. And then when we can't trust God, we become inevitably independent. Those are some roots that we see revealed here of why we are the way we are. So now the question is, what are the fruits of that? What happened as a result? We pick up in verse 6. I'll read the beginning of it, but we see... When the woman, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So, so first thing we can do is if anybody ever wondered where Adam was while this was taking place, he was right there. He was no help whatsoever. He didn't do anything, and that's why he is held responsible in all subsequent scriptures saying that he had violated his responsibility because Adam was the one that God had entered to a covenant with. Adam had the responsibility there. Now, some being sympathetic might say, well, what could he have done? I I don't know, but, I mean, he was the male. Chances are he was bigger and stronger. I guess he could have tackled her. Um, At the very least, you'd think he could say, no, stop it. 
And we don't know that he didn't, but if we, he did, then it was pretty half-hearted because look at what took place. Imagine that he did, just isn't recorded. She's starting to do that, and he says, no, don't do that. And she says, oh, it's good. You want some? Okay. I mean, that's the passion, the credibility wasn't there. So it's probably easier to believe that he just stood there and watched. He was curious. I suspect he shared some of the same doubts. So here they are, and they both eat. The first fruit of their disobedience, the first fruit of their brokenness that we see is, is shame, which is evidence in their going into hiding. The passage tells us that they, they realized, their eyes were open, that they realized they were naked, so they got loincloths, or they got fig leaves, and then they got loincloths, and, and, they, and they hid themselves. From who? So they're naked. What, are they worried the neighbors are going to walk by and peep through the window? Now, while I do believe it's an expression of the reality of their physical condition, that they were naked, which then led them to believe they needed some covering, I think it expresses something far more. In their nakedness, they came to see themselves fully for who they are. There was nothing that was covering them, and they decided they didn't like themselves. They experienced shame and so they decided to cover themselves so that they would not be seen for who they are that same problem exists for us today because we do the same things most people here if not everybody has this deep gnawing fear some more chronic than others that simply says I wonder if you would like me if you really knew me. And fearful that the answer is not, we clothe ourselves, sometimes with literal clothing, with the fashion that we project an image. Sometimes we clothe ourselves with stuff, whether it's cars, houses, other kinds of fancy toys. Sometimes it's our careers. It's an image that we project, and all of the image that we project is in order to deflect the attention from who we are and put it onto what we want people to see. Because we hide. Because we don't want anybody to see through us. We don't want to feel naked and exposed. We don't want people to evaluate us as we really are. And so they felt shame and they hid. The second fruit is conflict. Now, part of the conflict happened through the negative influences. We see that Eve's influence on Adam and then the serpents on Eve's, but we see the evidence of the conflict through blame shifting. The Lord went and asked Adam, what did you do? Adam's response was, the woman, it was her fault. The woman you gave me, it's, it's Lord, it's your fault. Lord, you, you knew I was an idiot. You should have given me a better wife. Eve says it's the serpent's fault. We see conflict beginning to develop. Having been trained and experienced as a counselor, if I use these folks as a case study, I would use the classic term and say these folks have issues in their marriage. They are not one, but they are sacrificing somebody else in order to deflect any potential 
repercussions against themselves. And so for the first time, they are not one. They are at odds with one another. The third fruit of our, our brokenness is the spiritual division. We see the evidence of this not simply by them clothing themselves, but the pa passage tells us that they heard God walking through the garden. So there was some physical manifestation of God, whether he was visible or not. There was something that enabled him to make sound as he was going through the garden. They recognized the sound because they'd heard it many times before, because they had perfect intimacy with God. They knew what it was, and so they went, and they hid. Who were they hiding from? I mean, they hid together so we can rule out hide-and-seek as a form of entertainment. But they were hiding from God. The fact that they chose to hide from God, the fact that they felt like they should hide from God is, is the clearest evidence that they had now become estranged from God. They didn't want to be in fellowship with God. They were afraid. And it may not be surprising. If you think of God as harsh as Eve did, and probably Adam as well, and you know that you had broken the rules, you're no doubt going to be afraid of what might occur, especially when you've already been told death, although they didn't know what death was necessarily. They just knew they didn't want to find out. And so they hid, foolishly as it is, they, they hid from God. They were now alienated. And so we see that the fruit of the brokenness is that they experience shame, conflict, and a broken relationship with God, the one who was their only hope and the true provider. This is not only true for them, but it's true for any of us. God comes to them, and that's when he says, where are you? And that's a pivotal question because it helps us to understand what the solution is. So what is the solution to our, our condition? I don't know where you hate to drive, but no place tops my list than Atlanta. I had to be there earlier this spring. And I left in plenty of time to get there at a decent time, but there was a wreck south of Chattanooga that left me past the most recent exit I could get off and just stuck and sat there for over an hour and a half. And so I had the, the joy of getting to Atlanta at 5.15 on a Friday afternoon. Atlanta is an amazing place if you've ever driven, especially that time of day or any time during rush hour in Atlanta, because there are two things that are totally impossible that happen at the same time. One is you're at a deadlock and nobody is moving. And the other is people are flying by you and all around you at the same time. Now think about that. How can people be flying all around you but nobody's moving? It, but it happens, I promise. Just go and you'll see it. It may not be the only place, but it happens. And the other thing that happens is you're not going to change lanes very easily, but you'd better be in the correct lane, especially if you have to go through downtown, because there are lanes both on the right and the left, and whatever lane you're in when you get there, that's the direction you're going, whether you want to go there or not. So if you're not in the right lane, I was trying to get to the airport in the south side of town. I could have, if I was in the right lane, I could have found myself in Birmingham. If I was in the left lane, I'd have been in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, and I needed to be at the airport. And so the key was making sure that I was in the right lane. Now, the reason that I share that is because we experience the same thing in our culture. Just as there's no lack of opinions as what has caused our problem, there's no lack of opinion as to what the solution to our problem is. And so you've got people that are all around you, buzzing around you, creating confusion, 
maybe even causing tension as you're trying to navigate and go where you need to go to follow where you need to go. But you've got people who are trying to force you to the left, and they would say things like this is, here's the solution to our problems. Just realize we're all flawed, and if you don't think anything about my flaws, I won't think anything about your flaws. We'll all get along as long as we have no real standards whatsoever. That's the answer to the left. Just live and let live. But then you have the people that are trying to push you to the right, those that are probably more like us if you've chosen to come to church here. They look at it and they say, well, here's the problem. Eve disobeyed. Stop disobeying. You'll be fine. Just start behaving and you'll be what you need to be. The problem is that's not what God says. We are told in the Scripture, don't fall to the right or to the left, but we need to stay straight. and We need, from God's invitation in this question, even though it doesn't sound like much of an invitation, we see what God prescribes for us as the solution. God comes to Adam and he says, where are you? Now, who did he ask that question for? Did God really not know where he was? You know, come out, come out, wherever you are. I mean, that's not what he was saying. He's saying it much like a parent will say to a child who has repeatedly misbehaved. And getting caught in the act, the parent will say, what are you doing? Now, in my house, I already knew because there's nothing they've done that I didn't do. But if I ask the question, it's not because I want an explanation. Maybe there's some cool thing I didn't try. It's because I want them to look at their life and see their situation and consider how they feel at that moment. What were they like beforehand? And now, what will they be like because of the consequences? God was asking Adam, where are you, to cause him, to force him, to take an inventory about himself. What was your life like prior to your disobedience? Now look at yourself. You're uneasy, you're in tension, you're anxious, you're afraid, you're you're at odds with your wife, you're running from me. Where are you is a primer question for Adam to understand his condition. Because until he understands his condition, he will have no interest, no hunger for the real remedy. It's a question that you and I need to be asking ourselves regularly, daily. Where are you? We need to understand our condition. Because only with the condition will we look for the answer. Only with understanding our condition will we want to hear what God has to say to us. And we need to realize that the real issue was not the behavior. When Eve sinned, it was simply the consummation of a problem that had already occurred. Why did she eat? It's a simple question. Because she wanted to. So she already had a desire that was out of order from what God had told her that she should do. That itself is sin. She had an attitude. She was independent. She would be the judge. She was above or at least equal to God. That also is sin. Sin already existed before she ate. Why then do we look back to the eating and declare that as, as the original sin? Well, the answer is because there is no question and doubt. Eve would, you know, she, can't, she could deny her attitude, maybe even lie to herself. She could deny her desire, maybe even to herself. She could lie. But she ate. She ate of the fruit in direct disobedience, and that was the consummation of the sin. Sin had already taken place. And God didn't say, all right, now that you've experienced it, we're going to punish you uh, and put a, a fence around that tree, lock the gate, put an armed guard there that, so nobody else eats of its fruit. God didn't say that. One reason we know that is the fruit must still be available. My kids ate it. I ate it because all the things that they do, I continue to do and have done all of my life. 
The brokenness is contagious. It's passed down from generation to generation. All of us are the inheritors of it. The solution that God gave is not simply to behave. The solution, the hope that we have, is according to a promise. What God does at this point is he does his detective work. He takes all the people that were at the scene of the crime. He says, Adam, what did you do? Eve, what did you do? Serpent, what did you do? And if you read the passages that come down, he speaks to the serpent and he says, here's what's going to happen to you. He speaks to Adam and Eve and said, there's going to be consequences for your actions because you disobeyed. There is always consequence for sin. But then he does an amazing thing. Even in the midst of declaring the consequences for sin, he makes a beautiful promise. In verse 15, theologians call it the proto-euangelion. It means the first expression of the gospel found in Scripture. And in this verse, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the promise of the seed of the woman that is the fulfillment of the coming of Christ, the promised Redeemer, and what he would do. Not simply to come and be born, but the bruising and the, and the destruction of the serpent and his power would happen with what Jesus was born to do. He was born to die in our place. And what he, God is referring to as the gospel is also the hope and the remedy for us personally and for the world. Because what God is referring to here, what he is pointing to here is what Jesus has done, and at the cross, Jesus made a complete reversal of the mess that Adam and Eve had made that plunge us into the situation we're in. You see, the essence of God's conversation or the rule instruction to Adam and Eve was this, obey me about the tree. But they disobeyed and suffered the fruit of their disobedience that we continue to suffer both because of what they did and what we do. God's instruction to Jesus in the garden was this, in essence, obey me about the tree. And Jesus obeyed. And he hung on the tree. And he bore the penalty that you and I deserve. And with his death, he paid the price we deserved. With his resurrection, he freed us yet again. The bondage we had been plunged into had been reversed and we have been set free. And God's grace is demonstrated. His love, his compassion, he provided for them when he could have wiped them out. His response is to be faithful to the promise, both of the, of the consequence and then to his own character. This is the God that we are to look to. It's not about behaving. It's not about not worrying about behaving. It's about seeing who God is, what he has done, and then responding to the God who is that wise and glorious and gracious and loving and compassionate and providing. And now obedience becomes a byproduct, not a way of earning favor. Obedience becomes a way of expressing love to that God rather than trying to get love from that God. That's the hope of the world. That's the hope of our lives. Our hope is our redemption according to God's promise. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this word. 
that you have given us and the example of our first parents. And confess that I, am, I look all too like them, but long to be like they were prior to their disobedience. Thank you that you have not left me to my own flailing or left me hopeless, but that in Jesus you have accomplished that, have restored this fellowship, and have made me your child. Not only me, but all to whom you have given the gift of faith and adopted and born anew by your Spirit. Father, renew our minds and our hearts that we may press straight through the cross to you not falling to the right or to the left, or falling for any of the ideas of this age. By your Spirit and your Word, bring this to fruition, I pray in Christ. Amen.